Welcome to the Pentecost Podcast. I'm your host, Ewan Ebsworth. The Pentecost Podcast is a podcast dedicated to exploring Pentecostal theology and history. If you're a Pentecostal who is passionate about theology or someone discovering Pentecostalism for the first time, then join me in exploring Pentecostal theology and history through this podcast. This episode is part six of our The Church and the Full Gospel series, based on the book Toward a Pentecostal Ecclesiology, The Church and the Fivefold Gospel. In this episode, we're going to explore Jesus as the returning king and the eschatological nature of the church and the kingdom of God. This section of the book begins with the ascension of Jesus. We read in Acts 1, 6-11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The ascension of Jesus marks the start of the eschaton between his ascension and his second coming. It is what makes the season of Advent leading up to Christmas so relevant to the church as we not only look back at Jesus' birth and first Advent, but await the advent of his return every year, casting our gaze to the horizon of human history in expectation of the second coming. It is what makes the Lord's Supper a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, pointing forward to when Jesus consummates the new heaven and new earth. It is the ascension that grounds the resurrection in human history as no mere apparition or liberation of the soul from the body. Quote, in the ancient world, human ascension was interpreted along the dualistic lines of Plato as an over-realized eschatology, and in the patristic and medieval world, as the mystical ascent of the mind. The ascension of Christ, however, eschews the anthropological priority of the mind by pointing to a real history between the resurrection and the ascension in which Jesus walked among his disciples. End quote. The key point here is that the ascension is a historical reality that grounds Jesus' resurrection in our physical world and also gives the course of human history its terminus and endpoint, the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, culminating in the second coming of Jesus and the consummation of the new heaven and the new earth. The ascension also has important implications for Pentecost, not just as its immediate antecedent, but also infusing the church with eschatological meaning, purpose, and hope. There are parallels and allusions in the story of Pentecost with the creation story of Genesis 1. Quote, the images of Pentecost hearken back to the Spirit's descent as the wind of creation, when the Spirit broods over the waters. End quote. In the imagery of the Spirit at Pentecost, the rushing wind and the alighting of the tongues of fire upon the disciples, we are reminded of the Spirit hovering over the waters and the many references to fire representing the presence of God in the Old Testament, such as the burning bush 
the pillar of fire and the fire that consumed Elijah's sacrifice. Quote, At Pentecost and throughout the narrative of Luke Acts, creation and new creation are interdependent with the goal of creation being its consummation in the Sabbath rest, a goal that includes creaturely people who will truly be the image and likeness of God. End quote. As Frank Macchia, one of the contributors to this section of the book, points out, spirit baptism is connected to eschatology as an integral part of the empowerment and identity of the church to fulfill the kingdom of God. However, Machia makes an important distinction between the church and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God serves to call the church back from error whenever it strays, to bring the church back to repentance when we fall short of the kingdom. It is the prophetic voice producing revival and renewal in the church, and it provides the church with its mission in the world. Yet, although the church and the kingdom of God are separate and distinct, there is still a correlation and a relationship between the two. The church functions, in the words of Machia, as a sign and instrument of the kingdom of God in the world. As an instrument of the kingdom, the church's primary means of ministering the truth and reality of the kingdom is through the preaching and proclamation of the word of God. Quote, the scriptures are not simply a list of infallible propositions, but are rather a living witness that calls the church to the unfinished business of its devotion to the kingdom of God in the world. End quote. This brings us to the writings of the Apostle Paul and the metaphors he uses to explain the hope of the resurrection and its connection to the ascension. Paul speaks of Christ as the first fruits, the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our salvation, and the Holy Spirit as the seal of our salvation and redemption. Each of these metaphors speaks to a future fulfillment. The first fruits of the harvest was the first crop, the rest of the harvest being gathered afterward. The down payment is a guarantee of our inheritance as children of God. The seal is a mark of ownership and election and protection on the day of judgment, much like the blood smeared over the doorposts protecting the Israelites during the Passover. Finally, we come to the Lord's Supper and communion as an eschatological sign. There are two components to the Lord's Supper, one that points backwards to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and one that points forwards to Jesus' return. As a sign that points backwards, the Lord's Supper is taken explicitly per the instruction of Christ himself as an act of remembrance, remembering and preserving the memory and meaning of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. However, as an act pointing forwards, like Jesus says in Matthew 26, 26-29, he will not drink of the vine until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, that whenever we take communion, we proclaim Christ's death until his return. Therefore, partaking of the Lord's Supper until Jesus' return is a foretaste of the consummation of Christ and the church as the bride of Christ in anticipation of the messianic marriage banquet in the new creation. In communion, the church models the unity to come in the new creation. Communion would certainly have been included in what Jude describes as the love feasts of the early church in Jude 1 verse 12. Our unity and love for one another points forward to the ultimate reconciliation between heaven and earth. What are my key takeaways? 
The Messianic connotations to the Lord's Supper is one further reason for its importance and arguably its centrality in our worship. In partaking of the Lord's Supper, we await with expectation Jesus' second coming as the returning King and enter into communion with Christ in his absence. One very fascinating point of correction the chapter makes is the biblical worldview of heaven and earth. Quote, Yet the ascension was not understood by the ancient world as some place called heaven that is above the earth. Heaven and earth are interlocking universes existing simultaneously, not a different place in time and space in the beyond. End quote. This has implications for the real presence of Christ and possibly explains speculatively how Christ could be present in the Lord's Supper despite being physically absent from the earth. I was also struck by the distinction between the church and the kingdom of God. For the good of the church, we need to maintain the distinction between the church and the kingdom in order to hold the church accountable to her mission and moral and ethical reform and renewal when needed. A church that is conflated with the kingdom could easily become idolatrous in such a way that its self-professed infallibility makes it impervious to valid criticism and resistant to the call of repentance and revival. Such a church would also theoretically lose sight of scripture as the plumb line of our theology and doctrine. Finally, the link between the ascension and the return of Christ helped remind me that Jesus' ascension was not the end of his ministry, but the climax, providing us with the hope not only of our own resurrection, but subsequent glorification. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes and help by sharing this podcast with your church, family, and friends. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'll catch you in the next one.